All right, on the podcast today, we have Jason calling us from Connecticut, and we're going to be talking about a few things, but primarily about grant money. Um, for our viewers overseas, they probably don't realize the amount of grant money that's available in the United States to uh, fire departments, emergency service personnel, but it's definitely a lot out there. And perhaps this is stuff that people up in Canada or overseas can look at with some of their state, federal agencies about you know ways to fund the fire service and emergency services. So welcome on, Jason. All right. Thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. It's good to be here. Right on. I want to just give a quick background about who you are, where you are, and what you're doing now. Sure. Uh, my name is Jay Urban. Uh, I'm from the Northeast, originally from Rhode Island, born and raised. Uh, my career in public service started in 1995 when I became a paramedic and uh, worked for a while for private services in the city of Worcester. And then in 1997, I was hired as a firefighter for the city of Warwick, Rhode Island Fire Department. Uh, 220 person department, uh, nine engines, three truck companies, heavy rescue, and uh, four transporting ambulances. I worked there for approximately 21 years before I retired and then began a second career now in the uh, central Connecticut in Hartford County uh, for West Hartford, Connecticut Fire Department. Uh, currently, I work here and uh, as also I teach for several entities. I teach for the Rhode Island Fire Academy, uh, the Massachusetts Fire Academy, doing tech rescue and rapid intervention. And uh, I teach for a company out of New Jersey called uh, Eckert Fire Tactics, where we do uh, all sorts of fire, innovative fire training. In fact, we just wrapped up a nice training weekend that was broadcast live on the internet with National Fire Radio. It was a good experience, a good company to work for. Right on. And, uh, it ends in a few things there. <laughs> yeah, a couple things. Sure. And um, so I was lucky enough during my tenure in uh, Warwick. Uh, I spent the last five years as an officer on uh, the heavy rescue. We call it special hazards. And uh, in 10 years out of my career, we had collateral duty, myself and another gentleman, in the duty of writing FEMA assistance to firefighters grants. And in that 10-year period, we had about $9.2 million awarded to us in federal funding for a variety of different projects, whether it was a vehicle, uh, a safer grant to hire manpower, uh, radio systems, uh, rapid intervention training programs, uh, a training building. And uh, the culmination of it was uh, the grant to form our technical rescue team. And we accomplished that in uh, 2016. $9.2 million. I, I get that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Um, not an insignificant we, um, amount start, of money. <laughs> yeah. It, uh, <laughs> it, was a pretty, it was a pretty good program. Myself and my partner, uh, Lieutenant Scott Jensen, who works now still in, in Warwick, we collaborated together with the city, the union, and got together and we just started these projects. And every year we would put in and then we would keep hitting. So we had a good thing going and uh, very time consuming, but manageable. And uh, we were able to get a lot of items that didn't fall into the budget and capital expenditures that the city would normally not be able to provide to us. We were able to get the funding for that, especially big ticket items like fire truck. I mean, getting an aerial apparatus through a grant, getting 900,000 just for the vehicle was a big win you know, to replace a vehicle. Absolutely. A um, couple of tangents and a few questions before we carry on. Rhode Island, I love it. I've been there a few times. Uh, yeah. You go back often? I do. Uh, I do. I, I, I don't live very far from there. Friends and family still in Rhode Island, still close connection to all of them. So I'm there quite frequently, yes. Right on. Oh. Um, Wooster, you said you're a paramedic there in 95. Yes. Yeah. When did the fire occur? Uh, uh, 1999. Yeah, I was already in Warwick when the cold storage fire occurred there. So I worked for a private third service that did uh, 911 for the surrounding towns around Worcester and as well as stuff inside the city. And that was my first job out of paramedic school. Good city to work in, good people. Yeah, and if uh, people ever want to look back in the history of the fire service, um, I can't remember the name of the book, but there was a good book written by a battalion chief on that fire. Um, 
I'll try to find the book and get it up somewhere. But guys and girls that are interested in the history and learning from yeah. other things in the fire service, there is some good books on stuff like there that. Is. Yes, correct. Absolutely. Um, so let's get right into the meat and potatoes of it. Um, okay. You were talking about FEMA assistant to firefighters, these grants. Can you just explain what are they? Like, where do they come from? What are they sort of thing? So the assistance to firefighters grants is put out through FEMA. It's through go.fema.gov. And you can register online as an entity if you are a you know fire department or a municipality that can that's eligible to participate in these programs. You can register as an entity and go in and start to write the grants. Um, they offer a ton of online assistance. Um, the FEMA, whatever region of the of the states that you fall under, they have people in there that will help you and work you through you know, setting up and, you know, telling you what's eligible and what isn't eligible for doing the grants. So they're very helpful. And usually the period opens up sometime, um, probably at the end of the year, usually in late fall or in the winter, it opens up. And then you can go ahead and start applying. It's usually anywhere from a four week to a six week window where you have to submit the grant. And then once it's submitted, then it goes through the review process, the peer review process, and then it goes through the computer system. And then sometime anywhere from six to seven months after that, um, you, you tend to see the notifications go out if you are awarded for the grants. Um, it's a competitive process. A lot of people put in for it. Um, a lot, there's a lot of agencies and departments that put in every year for things. So not every grant gets awarded. There are strict guidelines that go about what you can put in for and what you can't, and you need to follow and write your narratives. So there's a lot of work that goes into it, but the reward, if you can get what you get out of it, would be amazing you know, what you can do you know, if you put the right people in place. Now, I'm assuming that it's like anything. The more you do it, the kind of better you get at it. They don't change the rules or the go posts too much during the years. Yeah, exactly. It, the, the more you get into it and the more you write, um, it gets easier. They don't necessarily change the rules. They will change what is eligible to be awarded from year to year. You will see that. So you will see what they were awarding was in like the, the hot category one year may not necessarily be in the next year. So it all depends on, you know, what the, what the amount of money allocated and what they're really looking to put out there. Like training programs are usually every year. It's usually, yes, we'll pay for training or anything pro board certified. If you want to send your people through pro board training programs, that usually hits high every year. Um, You're really into the education. Does the amount of money change every year significantly or is it uh, pretty stable? Not yet. I, I believe it changes from year to year. It's pretty much stable but it's nothing anything drastic it's usually pretty much the same amount every year it's allocated and you know it all depends on who puts in i would think is, is a good way of putting it you know if a lot of people put in for it and you know the money's there so the way we always tried to sell it to our administration was the money's already there so whether a small department somewhere in the northwestern united states gets it or we get it it's out there so we should try and put in for it okay now, in 2016, you said um, you basically put in a grant and you got $1.1 million for the basic yeah. creation of a technical rescue team. Am I getting that right? Correct. That's absolutely correct. So it, that was, we had started in about 2010 with you know, doing the grant process and writing. And we had started getting like, we had gotten SCBAs for our department, the new compressor, and then we needed to rebuild our radio system and our infrastructure. So we had gotten a grant for that. And we started to get manpower grants and vehicles and training buildings. And we had in 2014, we had a successful grant to put a 48 hour rapid intervention training program in place for our department where we brought in an outside vendor to come in and do our entire department and put us through this rapid intervention program. And that was the first time in the history of our department that we had an outside vendor come in and do training. Never had anybody from the outside come in. We always did all our training in-house, but we felt that something as critical as rapid intervention could be taught by someone that's actually performed it, you know, that's actually done it 
and had successes and failures with it. So we brought in an outside vendor company out of New York State that came in and did the program. So we had already laid the framework to get training done by outside vendors. The city had already approved it. We already got funding. So we felt like we already had a ground, you know, already hit the ground ball. We already already off and run. So we were sitting in the grand office one day, myself and Scott, and uh, I had gotten assigned to the heavy rescue the year before. And I went over there from an engine company and being on the heavy rescue, they don't require you to have in Warwick, they don't require you to have any specialized training other than a hazardous materials technician. So no rope, no trench, no confined space. They don't require you to have it to be on the vehicle, which I thought was odd. So I wanted to do it right. Like anybody else who comes into special operations, you want to make sure you can do your job. So I started to ask about training and the department didn't have the funding to send me to go anywhere, do anything. So we were sitting in the grand office and I had this in the back of my head and I remember having the exact conversation with Scott. I said, I have this idea. <laughs> I would like to do this. And he said, it'll never work. <laughs> and I said, and as he goes, it'll never happen. I said, I think we can do this. So we started to look at our area and what we were doing. And in Rhode Island and offshore and around Warwick, they were starting to put up wind turbines for alternative energy. Okay. And they were constructing them. And I started to say to myself and to Scott, what happens if somebody's stuck in there? How are we going to get them out? The government is essentially paying for these wind structures and these turbines to go up, but they should be paying us <laughs> to rescue somebody in there. And he's like, oh, that's a pretty good idea. And at the same time, the international airport in, in Rhode Island was expanding and the government was funding this huge expansion. So, and there was trenches, there was confined space work, there was, you know, stuff that was elevated. And I figured to my, as long as the government is paying for these large scale projects, they should be able to pay and fund the local fire department to respond you know, to an emergency there. So that was the premise that it went off of. So that's what we decided that we were gonna do. And we said, rather than just send, you know, get the funding for a handful of people, let's just go for everything and form a team. So we broke it down and we looked at the manpower and what we had in our department. And we realized that with a 220 person department and with the amount of funding and to fall into the cap, because with FEMA, you can only put in for a certain amount of money each cycle. So the cap is just about $1 million that you can put in for total for your grants for any one agency. So we looked at what we could do and how we could break it up. And we realized that we could form about a 36 person team and put them through technical rescue disciplines and then form this team and still pay for an outside vendor and still pay for all the equipment that went with it. Hmm. Um, a couple quick questions. Sure. So you said uh, the FEMA cycle is about a million dollars. How, how long is a FEMA cycle? So if you, if you want to put in a submit for a grant and you, it usually is every fiscal year or the FEMA fiscal year runs, I believe, don't call me this, from September to September. Okay. So usually after the last year's is paid out, they start the process of doing the next cycle. So once it late fall, early winter, the application period starts to go out. And then if you read the guidance that comes out every year from FEMA and you read the then when they, they post the guidance of what you can put in for, what's eligible, what isn't eligible, how much money is out there. It gives you the rules on what you can apply for as well as how much you can put in for. Okay. So you're not guaranteed the amount that you put in for, but. It may pick it apart a little bit. Sure. Okay. Yeah, um, they, they, you could get a partial award. Yeah, yeah okay. Now, you said... Um, at the time, they didn't have requirements for going on rescue. Has that changed now since, you know, this yeah. grant money back? So now they uh, have some specialties to get on truck? Yeah. So it, it, it goes by contract. It's obviously it's all in what the union contract is. Uh, it's still a requirement to be a hazardous materials technician to be on the rig because we cover one of the five state teams that respond to hazmat. 
but they're still in place that it's still a seniority based system to bid onto the vehicle. And you don't necessarily have to have it to get on there. But now with the fact that almost a third of the department is trained, now you'll see the majority of the people that are assigned to the truck have that training in there. So by default, there are more qualified people on the truck now than there ever were before. But the way that the system is also set up in place with the technical rescue team, the vehicle and the crew will respond to whatever technical incident there is. But anybody else that's working in the city on another apparatus will be able to respond as well. And they can form the team on site. Just because you're working on the truck, they can still pull the manpower from anywhere else as long as they're working and assemble a team. Just kind of like a uh, moving task force almost where exactly I mean almost are they just the goalposts move a little bit with the trucks exactly yeah like a, like a dive incident you know if you had divers spread out throughout the city you'd be able to call them and get them to the scene or hazardous materials or anything else like that yeah but yeah okay now uh, when we were chatting earlier you said that you got them trained in seven disciplines is that correct sure yeah so um, we trained them in rope one and rope two. Uh, and whether well, we said NFPA rope one and rope two, uh, yeah. confined space, uh, tower and wind turbine, trench, uh, vehicle and machinery, and uh, structural building collapse, the full two week uh, structural building collapse class. So everybody went through the technician level for all that, as well as took the pro board certification. Uh, excuse me, no, we didn't do pro board certification, but we got the full cert technical rescue uh, level okay. in all those disciplines. So we're talking about eight weeks, approximately, maybe a little more, a little less. Oh, uh, yeah, went longer than that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> about eight weeks total, but we spread it out over a, a few months. So we would do, you know, put everybody through the rope one for a week, take a week off, get the vendors back for another week, do another discipline, and then move through. So yeah, about eight weeks total, eight nine weeks in full training. Okay. Um, now. Did you guys do this in a particular order? I mean, I, some of these questions, you know, for some of our viewers, it could be like, of course we did it in this order. But for people that don't yeah. understand technical rescue, what order did you guys yeah. pick for this? So we started with rope, first of all. So we wanted to get everybody through rope one for us to get people that had limited or no background in it at all, at least get the fundamentals of the foundation down through rope. Then after rope, it went to confined space. Uh, when we went and did confined space, and then it, it went to... Uh, trench then vehicle and uh, machinery and tower all were mixed in there and we ended it with the structural collapse um we were, had to go by the weather we started it in january so it was cold doing the rope outside it was real cold um some of it was inside and and then we moved on to confined space and that was cold it was outside but we wanted to wait to do the structural building collapse because we knew it would be two weeks outside and put that off towards the end when we got the weather warmer towards the spring. Okay. Um, and you said it was 36 folks you ran through this. Yeah. Yep. Now the, and, uh, FEMA, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Please, I'm sorry. Go I was going to say the FEMA grants covered now the, the backfilling, is that correct? And the training or just, the yes, training? they did. They covered everything. So, well, almost everything. So the grant itself, comprised about $1.1 million. And when you broke it down, it was approximately $550,000 in overtime or backfill. Yeah. $215,000 for all the equipment that we purchased to do that would be ongoing once the team was formed. $250,000 for the vendor. And if you break it down by discipline, it was about $60,000 in equipment for rope, 10,000 for vehicle extrication, 10,000 for trench and about 8,000 for the structural um, building collapse class. So that was the breakdown of the equipment. So, but with that, what people need to realize too, that with the FEMA AFG grants is there's a co-share. So you're responsible for a percentage of that and it's based on your population and community that you serve. So the city of Warwick has a 10% co-share for our grants. So the city has to pay 10% for every grant that we pay for, for matching funds. And that's where you really need to loop in your administration and your city hall or town hall or your government and get them on board when you're gonna write these grants because most 
municipalities and most fire department operating budgets don't have a line item for grants because it's now guaranteed that you're going to get awarded the grant. So they want you to put in for the grant, which is great, but they need to know that you have to pay the co-share. So if you need to come up with $100,000 co-share, you know, for a big grant, you need to be able to go to your government and say, okay, we got the grant, but you need to find the money somewhere to pay for this. So that's where one of the success stories that you can have with the grant program is to really be proactive and work with your city administration, your city government, or you know, municipal government, as well as your union, because there were some union issues that came up too with doing this. So you need to have everybody on board if you want to have it work. So you say 10% responsibility, so 110,000 had to come out of the city. Basically. About that, yeah, had to come out of the coffers somewhere. So I don't know, Chief Armstrong, you know, Chief Armstrong, the chief of the department at the time was a great partner for us. He was very proactive about the grants and he would make that walk across the street to city hall and say, look, we've got this, this is what we need to do. And he would go before the council and uh, we sold it. And, uh, you know, we had a good success with it. So we made it work. Right on. Um, specifically with the equipment for my first kind of question here, you had mentioned in there about a switch to 11 millimeter. Did I read that wrong or is that correct? Oh yeah. No, that's very true. So that's all on Scott, my partner, Scott. He, Scott is pretty much a rope guru from day one. He's been involved in the rope world and doing this stuff for a long time. And like 99.9% .9 of my knowledge before this program and even afterwards has come from him and his, you know, his circles that he goes with and, working in the academy. So we had talked about it and it was going to be a culture shock for our job. And not only that, we were the first ones in the state to actually go to it. Everyone else has been using half inch rope everywhere, you know, like your typical fire-based system. Yeah. So we saw it as an opportunity to move forward, but at the same time, it was also a need because we were replacing rope and hardware that was beyond its life expectancy. So we reached a point where we needed to replace it with the same stuff or move forward in a different direction because the stuff needed to be replaced anyway. So we felt, you know, Scott was really pushing for the 11 mil and I didn't know much about it. And I'm like, okay, this is what you want to do. We'll do it. But it, it required everything. So I meaning it wasn't just coming in with new bags of rope. It was all of the devices and the descenders and everything else had to be changed over that went with it. So we figured we'd go for it and we did. And, um, you know, it's interesting. We didn't get the pushback that we thought that we would get from the people on our job when we changed over and we didn't get much. And then looking back and thinking about it, the people that are really vested and interested in doing rope rescue and doing with that were on board with it because it was new devices, new equipment, and it was lighter and they were all for it. The people that weren't really involved with rope rescue, didn't really care <laughs> so it didn't really matter i mean they didn't really they look back they're going to look at a bag of rope like it's a bag of rope so it didn't really matter if you give them hardware and this and you tell them to build a simple system they'll do it with whatever you give them so it didn't really matter the only pushback we ever got is from departments outside of our city if we did regional training or did some usar type stuff or people that had never seen it before and you know they were like, oh, you know, it's not rated the same and it's not, you know, you get the stuff you hear constantly. Yeah. Oh, the, what, what is it rated for? Or what's the safety factor and all that? So a lot of explanation and we pretty much, the first time we would send them climbing up the tower to set up a system up a radio tower from doing it and they realized it was a lot lighter and easier and sold them on it without any difficulty. Now we've been over for about five years now in my department and we did some joint training on trench with a neighboring department not too long ago. And they've now gone to 11 since then, but at the time they were 12 and a half or half inch. And uh, I remember our guys looking at it and the look on their face was priceless. Cause it was like, this is like rigging cable, right? And yeah. only five years or maybe even three years at that point earlier, they were using the exact same equipment, but they just totally forgotten about it. Exactly. And it was the same thing. So we knew once we switched over and went to it, it, it would be a lot better. And we also, you know, brought in a lot of stuff that people had never seen before, like the Vortex. This was our introduction to the Vortex and Aztecs and ASAPs and, you know, things that, you know, MPDs and Petzl IDs at the time. So this was pre-clutch and, and, you know, pre-maestro. So getting NPDs and Petzl IDs were big because they were replacing the racks and the eights. And that's what 
we had used for as long as I can remember in different ways of anchoring and slings now we were bringing in and just all, you know, swivel pulleys and just all these rock exotica products and non-steel carabinas. I mean, we pretty much flipped the apple cart of everything that we've done, you know, previously. So, and Scott had a lot to do with it. And I just said, I'll write whatever you want. And he pretty much, I mean, it's, it's interesting. You know, we were kind of like, it was kind of like Shawshank Redemption, the two of us kind of, because he would kind of, you know, be the money guy and do all the budgeting. And I would just be the guy that would acquire whatever he wanted, you know, so we kind of worked together and we were a good team to uh, get the stuff. So. And the chief was yeah. like the warden when he said, thick as thieves, you too. Exactly. Pretty <laughs> much. Yeah. <laughs> pretty much. A lot of it was out of sight, out of mind. As long as we sent him, you know, as long as we get an award package every now and then he pretty much let us do what we wanted for a little while. Yeah, so it was good. And uh, yeah, it was a good foundation to start with. So yeah, the, the equipment, you know, not only was it for the rope stuff, but it was extrication. So we pretty much, we've been a paratech department for a long time and we wanted to expand our paratech capabilities. We wanted to go to the hydrofusions, gold struts, stuff to do structural collapse. We really needed to get, you know, new heads for the paratechs and uh, extrication equipment. We went to the hydraulics. So there was a lot of other extrication equipment that went in with it, stuff for trench, new panels, uh, new jacks, and then with that, even through the equipment for structural building the collapse, just all the things you wouldn't think of, like hand tools and things you would need to do to do trench work. We didn't have any of that, so a lot of that went into it. We upped our game with a lot of Milwaukee products and a lot of we got a new torch with the Petrogen torch, so we were able to expand with a lot of different capabilities, not just rope, but anything technical. We were able to get some new equipment and just expand for anything. So. But I would say the two biggest focuses that we had to do for equipment to change everything was updating all our entire rope inventory, cash, and vehicle extrication, really expanding on what we did for our vehicle X and trying to be able to handle large-scale incidents, big vehicles, big crashes. So that was the premise of it. Right on. I've got a few questions in here when it comes yeah. to equipment because I know we, we just put a rescue into service for the first time last June, and we built a hall, put a rescue in there. We've done some of the similar things and we've come to some of the same conclusions. And I mean, you and I have never chatted before, but it might be useful for some of the folks that are listening just to figure out where some of these ideas came from. Uh, first thing, before I get into that, though, you talked about um, life expectancy of your rope gear was passed. What are you using for your life expectancy of your gear down there? So it was pretty much like a 10 year, it was supposed to be a 10 year cycle. Okay. And when we looked at the 10-year cycle, we also looked at the amount of use that it had in there. And But as you know, when you have personnel change over from year to year and you have different officers come in, there wasn't really a lot of accountability in our rope logs and our equipment. So it was tough to check. Some of the stuff was dated. Some of it wasn't. We really looked at some of it and some of it was really abused for training. So we knew that that was past its expectancy. Some of the stuff just sat on trucks for years and bags on outlying vehicles that wasn't necessarily on the special hazards or the rescue. So we brought everything in and we looked at everything and we, we kind of got a number of what we needed to replace. And some of it was still good quality rope. So we were able to take some of that half inch that we weren't going to use for, for our operations anymore and turn it into either utility rope or turn it into anchor rope, you know, cut into 50 or 80 foot sections or 20 and 10 foot sections to make use it for anchors, use it for guys, um, tie backs. So we're still able to use a lot of it. We also put a separate side of the half inch aside just for training because we still had devices for half inch rope. So we put a lot of it together and off to the side and, hey, you want to build hull systems on the floor, you want to do this, use this instead to at least get the technique down without using, you know, the stuff on the trucks. Yeah, right it was Sorry, like Garrett. anything else, you know, you'll find a bunch of steel carabiners, you know, somewhere in a bag, you know, some of them are etched and engraved, some of them had paint on it, you know, some of it, you, you had no idea the life expectancy of it. And so you're like, ah, maybe it's time they just went away. Yeah, we used a lot of that old stuff as well. The old steel carabiners, put them in the rafters. And when I say last year, and I meant June of 2019, this COVID year has eaten me. Uh, we used yeah. some of the 12 and a half for some of the panels and stuff and trench lower and shores. That exactly. sort of stuff. You always yep. need crap rope around there. Um, yep. Same thing. I mean, yeah, absolutely. All I, yeah, a lot of a half inch rope went to trench. 
Yeah. Um, e-tools. You said you stuck with Paratech or did you, uh, how do you find the e-tools that you're using? So uh, the e-hydraulics we went to, we, uh, we used Hearst for our e-hydraulics because we've been a Hearst department forever. And with that was the Paratex and um, using the, the hydrofusions, which were new to us. So we didn't really have anything to lift or capture before. And uh, we decided to incorporate the hydrofusions in there and uh, they work phenomenal. We really got a lot of good feedback from the guys, a lot of good evolutions with it. They used them repeatedly on incidents. So we were able to do a lot of lifting and capturing. Um, we kept with the same Paratech bags, airbags, and we even switched those, that maxi force bag, the double donut bag, if you've ever seen it. Uh, we switched over to that. So we were able to get a rapid lift with that. But now we were capturing with either the Paratex or incorporating the fusion to capture whatever load we were picking up. And uh, we expanded our chain capabilities. We switched over to chain for a lot of our capturing. Um, 80 or 100? 100. We went all 100. Right of us. We figured, it, yeah, the government was paying for it. We could, so it's, it's funny yeah. that two departments on opposite coasts in two different countries <laughs> have bought almost yeah. identical gear. Exactly. You know, and we just we decided that that's what we're going to do. We're going to hit it up with chain and we're going to incorporate everything in there. And so we're able to really expand that. But we've always been Paratech. We looked at, you know, the quick jacks and a lot of those quick, you know, one strut one strap systems and we, we thought about them to put them on the outlying trucks to have a quick stabilization but we uh we ended up at the end just sticking with uh all the paratech right on and to back up the hearst e-tools how have you found them uh i like them uh i thought they were great they they were a culture shock for us so you can imagine 40 inch arms 32 inch arm spreaders going down to the 28 hydraulics yeah. So it was a culture shock for some of the, a lot of the tenured members who had never used something before. So getting the technical team on board and getting this equipment was good. You get a lot of practice in there to, you know, change the techniques a little bit to be able to use them. You know, you get a guy, you know, who's got 25 years on the job, who's been doing extrication for a long time. He likes those 40 inch arms. He likes to get them in the door and spread it until you can spread no more, you know, open it up. <laughs> so it was uh, a little bit of a culture shock, but, Man, I tell you, those hydraulics are a game changer. I mean, just to be able to move, I mean, just to be able to bring something down an embankment off, off the highway or to be able to bring it into a building if you had a machinery rescue, I mean, you're not bringing the power head in or you're not going off the reels off the truck and you're only limited to, you know, 100, 150 feet. So it was a game changer. Um, little, you know, the cutters, probably the strongest I've ever used. They, they, they cut really well and the rams work well. You know, that's no. interesting. So that's one area, like total tangent here, where we're still running on the reels. We're running the Hamaltra systems and we're running column medium size. And it's something we couldn't get the change over to. And I did a mutual aid run the other night, um, a tunnel between our city and another one where we had to cut a couple people out of a car. And their Rescue 7, our Rescue 4 showed up and their Rescue 7 has e-tools on it. And it was interesting being in command, you can kind of sit back and, you know, take in both sets and yeah. be able to look and go, there's some definite advantages to having them. I just can't sell it yet here. <laughs> it's, you know, you look at, you know, way extrication has evolved, even over the last few years, and everything's going lighter and faster. I mean, 20 years ago, we obviously would never be using a sawzall as a primary means of cutting a vehicle. But now with the blades and, you know, they're so powerful now. I mean, the third, the third member of our crew, you know, somebody would be on the spreaders, somebody would be on the cutters after stabilization was done. And the, the, you know, the guy would be with the sawzall and yeah. he could cut one side of a post just as quick as you could cut it with a cutter, you know, the regular cutter. So you know, definitely changed it up a lot. Uh, another quick question on equipment before we jump into something further. Yeah. Petrogen. Why the Petrogen? We got one as well. Uh, I'm curious. Yeah. Very good question. Um, so we, uh, we were looking for something different. Um, we had oxyacetylene, still used it. And they still use it on the truck, so it's very, very good. It works well. But we had one of those exothermic ones with the rods yeah. that you put the rod in, and it was outdated. It, it was expired. It, it had reached its life expectancy. It, it wasn't working well. So we thought with the amount of training that we're doing with the structural building collapse, we've got a metal that we were going to be cutting and everything. We figured let's get another type of torch in there with something that gasoline is always available 
So we figured if we could get the petrogen up and running, it can run off gasoline. It was a lot more easier to get for a longer operation than it would be to get in oxygen and acetylene if we had to do a, a prolonged torch operation. So that was the premise where we went when we decided to do it. So we'd have both available for us. And we get rid of the XO. Uh, that was the reason. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, we've picked up one as well. And it's interesting that a lot of the departments, like I said, different countries, different coasts, picking up a lot of the same gear. So for yeah. people that are listening, reach out to neighboring departments, see what they're running. I mean, there's generally some general accepted principles out there of what people are buying. <laughs> yep. True. Very true. Yep. Um, now, so the training, equipment, what are you doing now? And I understand this is outside of the grant conversation. What are they doing now, if you know, because you're with a different department, for ongoing training of that team? Is that just incurring yeah. in-house? Is that incurring at the state level yeah. the fire academy? What does that look like? Both. Um, so what we established, once we got the, the program up and running and we finished, it was uh, a monthly schedule. So every month would be a different subject, different topic. They do something and we would either be on site at a training facility that we have in the city and or we would go somewhere in the city and develop a program or do a regional effort with a bunch of other agencies would come in and we'll host a day. So monthly, a discipline had to be covered and we would rotate it from month to month. Okay. Awesome. So we wouldn't be doing always doing rope. We would get extrication involved for another month. We would, you know, a couple of times we would actually find a spot in, in the city and have public works uh, dig a trench for us for the day. So we get in there and actually get a trench refresher. And so we wanted to stay current and keep our members current and keep them vested. With also included that each particular work shift could train at any time and bring all the members together that will work in that day and just, you know, switch some manpower around and keep some trucks on the line, but take some guys aside and actually spend a couple hours in a day and go over an evolution. So the team would get together once a month as a team and have something done or, you know, the individual shifts would do it periodically and whenever they wanted. There was, there is, and still is a great emphasis on training to keep it going. It hasn't been stagnant since it started. Right on. Well, um, regards to the grants, okay. what about, if you can, three takeaways that you could pass on to people that are writing grants? Sure. That, okay. you know, these are three things you're going to either want to do or maybe not want to do. <laughs> okay. So the, the biggest things that we can um, is to do your research. So do your research ahead of time for whatever it is that you're going to put in for. So if you're going to put in for training, and you have to train your members and they're requiring them to be on overtime or backfill, you need to calculate how much that amount is. So you, we did it. We based it all on uh, first grade officer pay. So bottom step lieutenant pay. So that's what we based the entire funding for the overtime on. So we picked the happy medium between other officers like captains or the, the, you know, regular firefighter rank. So the majority of them would be the regular firefighter rank, but if we picked a median amount, like at the lieutenant rate, that would give us a good hourly rate to go by to budget for the amount that needed to do the backfill. So we went, so you need to do your homework as far as how much it's going to cost you to do this equipment. You have to go out and research your vendors. You have to find out and research your equipment and find you know, what the median price is of anything that you're going to buy, because in case your grant award comes in less than what you anticipated, you still want to be able to find a way to get the equipment that you wanted. And you really need to get all the players involved. You really need to sit down and talk to your union. You have to, if that's an issue, you have to talk to your administration. Um, we reached out to our state and federal legislature. Anytime that we had done a grant or completed it, we printed a copy and hand delivered it to our congressional and Senate delegation and let them know that we were putting in for it because when the grant gets awarded, it's your federal or state legislature that's going to stand at the podium and say that they got this award, you know, from FEMA and we're presenting it to our constituents. So they want that press conference. 
And if they can politic for you nationally to get it, it makes them look better. And I mean, that, that worked out for us. That was perfect. We had that great partnership because we weren't afraid to just go and deliver the stuff. And you've got to get the people on board, you know, and then do your research and really, really look at what you want to get and what the need is and find the cost of everything. Right on. Um, I think that'll be pretty useful for folks that are new to this or maybe have been unsuccessful in the past. Yeah. Um, I can talk to you if you want. I can, you know, go about how we did the grant itself and, you know, different entities and challenges. If anybody's looking to do, you know, technical rescue, I can talk to you about, you know, the challenges that we had and the successes and really what was involved. Um, if you want, I can go over that for you. Yeah, absolutely. Love to take a look at that. So, the, the one thing that when we decided that we were going to do this was when you hit that accept button that you're going to accept that grant award, the clock is ticking. You have a year to complete whatever project it is that you've done once you hit the award. So you can imagine what it would take to put 36 people through seven technical disciplines, order equipment, find a vendor, you know, get the vendor approved by the, you know, the city, schedule the vendor to come and work into their schedule to get it all done in the one year time frame. So it was going to be a challenge for us and we knew this. So we sort of tag teamed and Scott dealt a lot with the vendors and he had some vendors in mind that he wanted to go with. And we started to look at the equipment and researching what equipment we wanted to buy. So I handled that aspect of it. And then we had to sit down with the union. And we had to talk to him because we wanted to form this 36 person team. And, you know, like with any union, it's seniority based. And we approached the union and said, we don't want to fill the team up with people exclusively with 25 years or greater on the job who would be gone in five years. And then there would be no sustainability to the team. So we, talk to them about staggering the years of service of the members ranging from senior leadership, you know, with 20 plus years to, you know, the 10 to 15 range, but including a good bulk of them with 10 years or less on the job so that they could get the training because they wouldn't be going anywhere for a while and would keep the team going. So we got them on board and they agreed to, to do that. And we encouraged our members to apply for the team. We, um, we set up informational meetings with our members beforehand. We had them come in. If you're interested in doing this program, come to one of our info sessions and we put a PowerPoint up and we described what we were going to do, what the time constraints were going to be, the commitment, and, you know, because if you're going to a week long confined space class, you have to come for the week. You know, you can't miss a day. We're not, we're not bringing the company back from California for a makeup day. So you need to be able to commit to what you knew. And so we had a lot of interest. We ended up with a waiting list. We ended up going down and, and getting the people in there. So once we had the number of people involved and we had it all set, we had to start soliciting for the vendors. And um, we ended up um, for rope and confined space and tower rescue, we ended up going with a company called D2000 out of uh, the West and the legendary man himself, Pat Rhodes. And um, <laughs> I will tell you that it was by far one of the best experiences I've ever had in best trainings. Um, I don't know if you've ever met him or you've ever taken any of his classes uh, or if the listeners out there have ever done with him. The man is amazing. He, uh, he is well worth it. And um, he's got a great way of teaching. Uh, he's very enjoyable and he's very bright. And uh, it, it was very great for us to be able to have him come in and do that aspect. And the team he brought in and the people he brought in were amazing. And um, for structural collapse, trench, and vehicle, we had a company called Spec Rescue out of Virginia come in and do that portion of it. And they were equally as amazing. So we definitely had some good vendors. We did our research. We had a budget to pick from, and, you know, it fit in, and it worked out well. They were really good. But I really enjoyed the time we had with Pat. Yeah, I've never taken any training with Pat and something I have to do. Spec Rescue, I can speak to. I've done some of their heavy rescue type training and yeah, they definitely deliver. Uh, Pat, you know, oh, I got to get on one of his courses at some point. It's, you know, I, I kind of 
and he's kind of like the uh, that Bob Ross guy who used to paint the photo, the pictures, that TV show. He kind of has that way about him. You know, it's like, oh, you know, you can tie that knot, but, you know, you'll fall to your death if you do. You know, so let's work on another way. Like he's got a really great way of, you know, conveying information in a way that doesn't make you feel like, you know, you're not learning. And uh, you just give him a blank slate. You give him an area to work with a tower or a venue. And he comes up with these training plans and he did this and the equipment that we're using and the theory that went behind him and everything. I mean, you read his books and, you know, I mean, it's just, he's just like that. And you watch him on Rigging Lab when you have him for a program, it's exactly the same. Right on. You know, and uh, yeah, it's very good. You know, I've been able, I've been privileged to take a lot of classes from other ages. I, you know, I went, took a Reed Thorn class, which is great. Um, another guy that you have on your program all the time, Craig McClure from Cracker Jack. I just finished up a three-day class with Craig and uh, this great company out of Connecticut called Vector Rescue, who's doing some great things out our way, had Craig come up. And uh, Craig was great. I'm crashing mm -hmm. with all those guys in Denver in about a week and a half. So. Are you really? Oh, so yeah, it's phenomenal. With guys. Vector and Craig, yeah. Oh, yes. Kevin, so they, and, uh, yeah. Great. yeah, Kevin, Kevin, great guy. And uh, yeah, so definitely. And uh, But, you know, Craig's right on par with Pat and everything. So definitely was a good refresher for me, but. So Don't was good. Craig, that'll go right to his head. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's probably true. It's worth it though. So it was good. Yeah. But um, so you know, we we had to get everybody on board. So then we started to look at the equipment. You know, we're purchasing all the equipment, and you know, with anything, equipment takes time. So your vendors have to be able to provide it for in a timely fashion. So we had to get everything there before the class started, and to go through the process of ordering and however the gov you know your city government orders things. So you have to make sure that you definitely do your homework and how long it takes because the city of Warwick with their purchasing order could take a month to get something approved. So we really had to get on our vendors and really try and get it in time, especially since we're, you know, using all new equipment that we never had, we didn't even have yet. So we had to do that. And then at the same time, so if we're forming this team, one of the other things that we worked into the equipment cost was outfitting everybody. So we got everybody a helmet, Everybody, you know, structural boots, BDU uniforms, um, gloves, eyewear. So we wanted everybody, jackets, you know, all weather jackets. We wanted everybody to have their own, you know, equipment to have so they could have a go bag ready in case there was a call out for an incident. Some guys opted to buy their own harness, but we ended up buying, you know, a bunch of Petzalabo harnesses to have on the trucks and, and stored. So there'll always be harnesses, but some guys opted to buy their own personal one and own bags and all the other stuff. So we wanted to make sure you outfitted everybody so we had enough equipment to start. So that was one of the big equipment things that we didn't think of initially, but when we started doing it, yeah, we're really gonna need to outfit everybody. You know, because we didn't have anything. Yeah. So we um we started with with uh rope and it was very good and um it worked out well for us. And then we had to do the second rope portion of it and this reminds me of one of the other big things that you can do with these training programs and grants is your community partnerships. So we couldn't have done this program without reaching out to the community and trying to develop relationships with what we had. So we looked at different things and there was a local construction company in Warwick that had a gravel pit that had the machinery set up. So we reached out to them and said, we were doing this program. Can we use your facility? And they're like, absolutely. We're a local company. We support the fire department. So they gave us the gravel pit to do trench. They gave us the elevated machinery stuff to do our machinery rescue. They helped us with the price of concrete so that we could form our concrete slabs for structural collapse. Uh, they donated Jersey barriers or road barriers for us to lift and move. Um, and to set up for our vehicle extrication. And all it took was a phone call in a meeting. Um, we reached out to local lumber yards. We worked out a great thing where we got lumber donated and different materials at a reduced cost. So we just reached out to them. We reached out to the local television outlets to use their towers to be able to climb uh, the towers. And one of the things too was uh, agencies, uh, advertising agencies to get a billboard. So we were able to work out and they actually use billboards on the side of the highway to do some of the training as well. So we just, all it took was just asking people and signing some waivers. And uh, one of the best partnerships we developed was with um, a local 5070 operating engineers 
on Rhode Island. Uh, and we approached them and they were like, absolutely. Because we have people that they, they had people they were training to dig trenches, pick up and move vehicles and to move heavy equipment. So if we showed up there for a day for trench, their people would get the experience digging the trench. We could use it in there. Same thing about setting up. So they, we would have all our cars, automobiles delivered for extrication, and they would use the heavy equipment to put them on top of each other to arrange, you know, have what we needed for extrication for the day because their students needed to learn as well. And it didn't cost anything. All it took was a phone call and sit down and meet with them. And that was a huge win for us. Same thing with the local junkyards and salvage yards to be able to get vehicles. All it took was just going out and knocking on some doors and, and talking to them and they provided whatever we needed. So we couldn't have done it without a community partners. And going out there and meeting them and trying to get ahead of it and find out how we can get help, that helped us huge to be able to pull this off in the short term. So it worked out very well for us. You really need to get out there in your community and see what's out there. People want to help. If you have this training program, you really want to help. There was one local construction company that didn't help. So <laughs> that was a little odd because about a couple of years prior, they had a person caught and one of, one of their employees was caught in the machinery. And uh, we thought for sure that when we approached them, they would want to help us since we already had helped them once, but that didn't pan out as much as we thought. So, but it still worked out. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's huge and can't be overstated enough. Uh, there's so many resources that are usually available in the city, private or public held, that, you know, like you say, 90% of them want to help out with the fire service, with the emergency services, in order to, you know, make things safer for everybody, including their staff. Yeah, they are. And it, you just have to ask. I mean, to be able to, to climb the radio towers and to be able to do this, and especially when we form the partnership with um, the wind turbine company. So when we realized that they were putting up the turbines in the city and surrounding municipalities and we were doing this program, we went right to their corporate office and we spoke with them. And wouldn't you know what a week later, our team is at an actual turbine and we're meeting with a representative who was from Europe and he had come over there and he was telling us all about the construction of the turbine, what to do, what not to do, how to safely operate inside of one. And we were doing evolutions there we were actually going up inside the turbine and actually setting up for rescues and actually working in the catwalks inside and we were able to get right up to the head of the turbine get inside and actually do a rappel from the head right down to the ground about a 300 foot rappel. each one of our students was able to do that so it was it was a great experience just to be able to get up in there and see how it worked and it's they're amazing pieces of machinery and uh we're very lucky to get in there and get the training because they're popping up everywhere. And uh, so our guys feel pretty confident now that they can get inside of one and set up systems because it was, you know, if you've ever been in there, you know, you can move up, you know, 30 to 50 feet. You have a catwalk or a platform, then you're going to move up again. So to get somebody out from the top of it who's injured, it's a long process, a lot of lowering, you know, from platform, a lot of resets and moving systems. So it was, it was quite involved, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, they're interesting machines. We've done a bit of work on them privately here. And yeah, they're definitely, the, we've got a few guys in from Europe that work for us and they're used to them over there. I mean, they've spent like like literally years inside of these yeah. things yep. almost. Oh, absolutely. Yep. All over the place there. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, once we got through the wind turbine and the, and the tower stuff and we confined space, we had done confined space and work for a lot, so for a lot of years. So we had some people that had at least operational level and a lot of people had awareness level and getting to the technician level worked out well. Um, the extrication portion of it in vehicle was very good. You know, we spent a lot of time in the junkyards and putting cars together and doing all these evolutions and with the operating engineers. So we really got the paratech stuff out and working. We really challenged you know, spec rescue really challenged us to really set things up and really work. And our guys really love the extrication portion of it, but to, you know, use all this equipment for the first time and a lot of capturing, you know, school buses and big rigs and moving concrete, you know, setting up whole systems and setting up systems to move stuff. It, it was really good. You know, we enjoyed it. 
Spec Rescue does that as a tangent. We lifted a train with it on my course and we're all looking at it going right. blowing bags like there's no way yeah, it's honestly there's no, right, exactly there's no way we're gonna and we, we were lifting things and moving stuff and and they set up these challenges and you know one and I, to this day you know one of the best drills or things these scenarios they ever gave us was this drill called the divorce court where they put a vehicle there and one team had to start at one end of the vehicle and the other at the back and you had to cut a path from one end of the vehicle inside to the other and move around the engine blocks. So you basically had to separate the car in half with the exception of the engine. And just, it was a great, and you only had a limited number of tools. So it was a good drill of, you know, working with limited tools and you know, communicating with each other. And uh, yeah, it was, it was fun. They really did a good job. Right. Uh, enjoyed it. Um, some of the other uh, things that I wanted to mention, um, was like the ad, the administrative stuff. So if you can get your admin on board, you know, they have to go, you know, sell the idea and get the co-share co in. You also have to explain why you need it. So if you, you want to do a grant and you want to get this equipment that isn't budgeted for normally or feel that you need to get it replaced or upgrade, you really got to stress why you need it. You really got to give the reasons. You really want to stress that you want to be proactive rather than reactive when it comes to establishing and getting equipment. We really wanted to get ahead of any sort of problem with a wind turbine, anything with the new construction going on in the expansion of the airports, anything you know technical related, we really wanted to get ahead of it. So we wanted to be really proactive and we really had to sell it and it worked. And then longevity, you need to come up with a program to replace equipment long-term. So you just can't buy everything on day one and expect not to wanna to have to replace it you know, a few years down the road. And then became, you know, training schedules and new standard operating guidelines or anything that you need to do. You know, once you got this new equipment, you know, we had to develop an actual standard operation guideline for the Technic Rescue Team because nothing was in place because we never had it before. So there was a lot of work that went into it after everything was formed to sustain it. And you really needed to, to get ahead of it. And that's all part of the grants. Anything that you come in, you know, new equipment. You got to be able to maintain it for years to come because you just don't want to sit on it. Yeah, and I think that's overlooked a lot, just that procedural piece of it. Um, and it is, like you say, it's not even just the maintenance of it, but it's also that somewhere to record institutional knowledge so that as people leave the program, that knowledge just doesn't disappear and you're not creating the wheel again six, eight, ten years down the road. Exactly. And the plan was in place to, to replace members that left or replace members that didn't want to be on the team anymore. So we're fortunate in Rhode Island, the Rhode Island Fire Academy has pro board certification classes in rope one, rope two, uh, extrication and confined space. So somebody's interested in joining the, the Warwick team, they can take these classes through the Fire Academy and get their pro board cert, their technician cert and get the training. So we've got a really good program going on in the state right now so they can continue that. So we can keep the team going where not necessarily the city, you know, your, your municipality doesn't have to pay for it. So, you know, if you're interested in forming a team and you're gonna write this grant, look to your local fire academy or your regional training center, find out what type of trainings they provide and you may be able to use that agency to do your training. I know some people have formed Technic Rescue teams with a grant and use their local academy as the instructors and pay that academy to provide the, the training for them. So you can look at that avenue if needed. Yeah, just a different option on it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely it is. Yeah, right. absolutely. We've been at this for about an hour. Um, All right. Anything else pressing that you want to throw out there? Otherwise, we'll look at starting to wrap it up. Uh, no, I nothing real pressing at all. Just wanted to, uh, you know, make sure that, you know, people just know if they're going to write these, do your homework ahead of time and really do your research and look at the time frame and use all the available resources that FEMA has. The, you know, they have webinars every grant cycle. They have info sessions. I know here in Region 1 in the Northeast, they host in-person meetings where you can go and meet with the, the, uh, the FEMA agency themselves and they'll answer questions for you. And uh, they're there for you. And even after you get hit, get successful grant award, they're there the whole step of the way because you have to manage the grant for the whole year. You have to file quarterly reports and you have to, you know, 
keep track of all your expenses and, and report everything back to them. So they are a great entity to work with. And uh, it can be done. I mean, you can do it. I mean, we did it. And we were just two guys sitting in a room one day and we just said, yeah, you know, we can make this happen. And, you know, we, we changed the whole paradigm of the job. And we, we did. We, we really, you know, made a positive change and really got some guys some great training and exposed to a lot of different things. And, you know, we got to meet Pat Rhodes. I mean, what's better than that? Spending, you know, a month with him. So it was great, fantastic. So, well, yeah, it was awesome. very good. I appreciate you coming on and passing that information on. I mean, that's one of the things we like doing here is trying to get that information out to the masses per se. And, um, you know, people that have the ability to utilize these grants, the more information they can get about them to make it, you know, positive impact on their department, the better. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, I mean, you just got to try, like I said, you just gotta, you just gotta get out there and give it a try. And if you don't get it on the first attempt, you no, know, find out what you did wrong and rework it and rework your numbers and see if you can make it work and you just try again. And, uh, you know, eventually you may hit and it'd be, you know, a good success story for your department. No, absolutely. Um, one quick tangent, 3000 Degrees <laughs> is the name of the book. Sean Flynn. Oh, yes. Yep. Okay. So, yep. So, yep. Yeah. Just for guys, if they're book nuts out there, there it is. But uh, outside of that, once again, thank you for coming on and uh, you're welcome. Look forward to talking to you again sometime. Sounds great. Thank you very much. Appreciate the time.